0: The views and opinions expressed by Rob Black and his guests are not necessarily those of KDOW or its management owners or advertisers and should not be construed as legal tax or investment advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making any investment or financial planning decision.
1: I'm Rob Black talking money, investing and more. Thanks for listening to the show. Anything that you want to talk about, we can talk about. 800 516 1220 to get your calls on the air. It's 800 516 1220 to get your calls on the air. Money, investing, and more. Sometimes we talk real estate. Sometimes we talk interest rates. Sometimes we talk investments, retirement, insurance. Speaking with a group of teachers recently, and one of the things I brought up was life insurance. And it's always shocking to me to see that teachers and police officers sometimes get just awful, awful financial advice. Uh, Because they're typically tied towards unions and their unions, you know, are very careful about who come in and who doesn't. No, they're not so much careful about that kind of stuff. They almost let anyone come in and give investment advice. And uh, to get investment advice from an insurance salesperson is just the wrong way of going about it. It's like getting um, advice on real estate from a realtor. How many realtors are going to say, you know what? (laughs) I want to buy on the peninsula. This is where I work. I work on the peninsula. I work in Palo Alto. It's the worst idea ever. You don't want to buy in Palo Alto. And they turn their internal editor on and they're like, Palo Alto is lovely. The average home is two and a half million dollars. And did you know that we've got the highest suicide rate of teenagers in high school in the United States? Oh, internal editor, fix it, fix it, fix it. But of the people that don't kill themselves in high school, they oftentimes go to wonderful schools like Stanford and Berkeley. Um, you're just not going to get a lot of honest conversations out of realtors more often than not about the cons or the negatives. Uh, here, I'll say things like, as an investment guy, yeah, the market hits record high seven out of 10 years. Yes, historically, the stock market beats real estate consistently over any 10-year period of time. Um, there's not a lot of leverage that you have to use with stocks. And therefore, people in real estate go, well, I bought a house once and, you know, I sold it a $400,000 profit. Yes, 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 yes. Totally get that. But you also leveraged up to the eyeballs when you did that. And you had to keep working. You had to keep paying uh, the mortgage in good times and bad. Um, 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. Anything that you want to talk about, we could talk about. One of the areas that I get a little pet peeved or a little annoyed at from time to time, and I think you could probably agree with me on this, is, when you see advice from people who are under the age of 30 and you're like, you're too young to be given advice. Um, And, uh, or it's someone who's like Uber successful in a hot market, like to be successful in San Francisco Bay area or New York city or Washington, DC, it doesn't take a lot. You're dealing with high priced real estate. Uh to be successful in Waco, Texas, that's the successful realtor that I'm going to be a little bit more interested in talking about trends, what they're seeing and or not seeing. So a 27 year old realtor and landlord explains the four things to look for in a good investment property. And when you see a picture of the person, I'm reading an article right now. You're like, she's a good looking woman. Um, and I just automatically get a little bit like, just be cautious, like. Uh, they say millennials are freaked out about investing, and I just talked to a group of new teachers, and in theory, they're mostly millennials because they just got out of college, right, new teachers. Now, some of them were a 35-year-old coming back to the job for the you know, second career, third career kind of thing, um, but they've only seen a bad economy, or they saw a lot of like real estate go down. They saw a lot of stock market corrections, so a millennial probably saw the 2000, 2002, the 2008 Debacle in real estate, and it's a very short-term memory um, of you know how painful that is, and how it's always that way. Even though we've gone through eight or nine up years now, where no one's talking about that, people are talking about how volatile the market is. There's commercials on this radio station that makes me want to vomit. Um, so, Tony Mendez, BayAreaLendsource.com, Tony. Good morning. Um, one of the things that spooks me about real estate advice is it rarely accounts for the bad times and how that could affect you. Um, Whether it be a period of time where you don't have renters, a period of time where you lose a job and don't have the ability to pay your mortgage. um, And things like mortgage insurance don't really cover it like you think they do. Um, So very few people keep emergency funds. We're talking about someone in your family that is heavily reliant on real estate and yet, there 's not a lot of buffer between success or failure in a
2: worst case scenario, yeah I think a lot of that comes down to people just the, the emotions of buying a house and the pressures of buying a house sometimes uh, outweigh the math um, uh, and I, I'm, being in the mortgage side of the real estate transaction that 's pretty much what I deal with on a daily basis and you know over the last five six years with qualified mortgages from Dodd Frank. Uh, it's given us a pretty good perspective on what what really is the qualifying limits for people, as opposed to what it was like back in two thousand five, six, and seven, leading up to the crash in the real estate market, where pretty much anybody could state their incomes. And stated income was a really dangerous product because, uh, and, and you can see how how powerful that was back in two thousand five, six, and seven, because our home prices were relatively the same. Um, back then as they are today but interest rates were two percent higher yet today we have qualified mortgages rates are lower but yet we're still ranging around the same purchase prices and and when you calculate that whole as far as affordability which really is the whole factor um, in in home prices and incomes putting that all together uh, it it, it this, the story doesn't end well for a lot of people when they max out those ratios, which people have were doing in the past. They were actually going higher than the ratios. Um, but it's something that I, I, I believe we have a uh, with with all you, what you said. I still think we have a much smarter and wiser uh, buyer and ownership pool than we used to. Oh, 800-516-1220
1: to get your calls on the air. It's 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. Um the housing market, and again, it's a pretty big group when I say that, um, but one of the things I just don't like about it is
2: the conflict of interests between the people. That's that- a tough one. I deal with that all the time. Right. Um, and you brought up a great example uh, where a realtor gets a client and they may or may not they probably don't qualify for a house in that area and they continue working with them and push them towards a property in that neighborhood um, when it, deep down the side in the back of their head they may not think that this is the right area but they may lose the business if they take them somewhere else or refer them somewhere else. Uh, that's a tough one, Rob, because the people that are in real estate, um, especially in a market like today where The um, inventory is low, sales are low, activity is not where it used to be. They're they're going to be looking for as many clients as they can. Yet, at the same time, we've talked to realtors that have said they know other realtors that won't even accept uh, a a client unless they are what you called uber qualified or uber successful.
1: So I once got some investment advice on real estate from a realtor, which I really appreciated. It I went in Tahoe. And uh, I was trying to be all smart, like, you know, what will my projected rent incomes be? And, you know, what utilization rate will I have? And how many people, you know, um, trash the place or not kind of thing? And how much is property management? And she said, you know, you're kind of an amateur. She goes, every house in Tahoe is a vacation house and they're not always going to be rented. And because that you're going to be paying 30 percent management fees. If you're smart, you'll pay 35 percent management fees and get a company that does a little bit more hustling on the marketing side for you. And like, whoa, that's a lot of money to hack up. Yeah. And she said, here's how you look at Todd. It was a real answer. Here's how you look at Todd. She said, it's like buying a Picasso. You pay too much for it. You enjoy it for 20 years. You sell it to someone else 20 years later and you probably do. Okay. I'm like, okay, that's pretty honest. Yeah. So. 800-516-1220 800-516-1220 to get your calls on the air. I'm Rob Black, talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Find me online at Rob Black show. Find Tony. He does more this. He's doing one for me this year. Find him at bayarealonesource.com. That's bayarealonesource.com. Want the podcast with music? Find the link to the other version of the podcast by going to Rob Black's Twitter. His handle is at Rob Black show. Listen to Rob Black and your money weekday mornings, 7 to 9 on AM 1220, KDOW fidget spinners have you seen kids dying to have one ma'am i want a fidget spinner you probably not because they're now no longer cool to have they cost around five bucks and while they're said to help children with various learning or attention disorders relieve nervous energy their recent turn is owed to a standard goofing around not behavioral therapy and teachers hate them principals hate them Parents are reminded that if a child's using a fidget as a toy and not as a tool, it should remain at home just like all toys. So there's a company called Five Below, which had a blowout quarter because of a preteen retailer, and they sold fidget spinners at a pretty fast clip. I would avoid. To me, kids are very fickle. Teenagers are very fickle. They have a lot of disposable income for sure. But um, it's like teenage girl apparel. What's in one week could be out the next. So be cautious. You're trying to look for dominant players, not trends, not not short term trends. Um, So I want to talk about another concept along the world of toys, right? There's a company called Electronic Arts. And I remember in sixth grade, seventh grade, coming home from school, And playing Bird vs. Johnson. No, no, it was probably 10th or 11th grade. Bird vs. Johnson. And it was on the Commodore 64. And it was made by Electronic Arts. And I would either be Larry Bird or Magic Johnson. And it wasn't a super complicated game. uh, But it was one on one. And that goes back many, 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 many years since I've been in 10th grade or 11th grade. Um, Electronic Arts puts gamers in the action. Uh, They're pretty well known for Madden NFL, FIFA, Soccer, Star Wars, and Battlefield, Mass Effect, The Sims, Bird, one-on-one with Magic Johnson. It still makes most of its revenues from games played on consoles from Sony and Microsoft and on personal computers. Uh, They provide online social games, such as those from Hasbro, like uh, Monopoly. They are getting into competitive gaming. Now, you may not think competitive gaming is something to think about. But literally, many, many years ago, when we played computers, you would play them by yourself. Pong, and you'd play against a computer kind of thing. Then you were playing Pong against another human on a console. And then that console got onto the Internet, and suddenly you were playing someone across the country and someone across the world. And then suddenly uh, video games like Call of Duty and Battlefield let you play 16 people versus 16 people. So it's 32 people. So there's competitive sports leagues now. If you go to twitch.com, twitch.com. Um, Amazon bought them where people watch video games and they cheer and there's a video game out right now that I don't know the name of it um, but basically it's, it's got an island setting and it's just brutal it's teenagers just killing each other it's kind of like the Hunger Games but more brutal and it's the way they show it on Twitch is pretty fascinating it looks like um, <clears throat> you're watching a murder like, you're like, no, dude, behind you, behind you. And you're totally into it. It's immersive. In Korea, they'll sell out 20,000 people arenas to watch video games. So that competitive sports gaming is taking off huge. Hi, my name is Philip.
0: Ask me about my Honda.
1: Or, as my friend Donald would say, huge. Huge. Um, I don't think there's a. You, are, I don't think there's an EWE huge. How, how are you saying that? I know what's good and bad. Um, so electronic arts is out there, and they continue to do quite well. So I just bring that up because um, I think it, as a nation we sometimes think of something like uh, video games as childlike, right? And I don't think we should. So um, because there's a lot of money in them, right? Are you with me against me? So back in 2000, and let's see, when did I send this email? 2005. I, I used to record all my notes for my radio show. And it, I wrote this, I did the radio show. I've been doing it for 20 years. So as soon as I got the internet and was able to put stuff on Yahoo for free, I, like, I should save all this stuff. So sales of video game software for computers back in 2005, consoles and handheld devices reached a record 7.3 billion in 2004, a 4% increase over the prior year. Consoles were bigger than computer versus portable. Now you look at people like uh, Apple, and they're going to make over $3 billion in in 12 months on Pokemon Go because they're getting a piece of that action. Um, When you go to Apple iTunes and you get Netflix, they get a piece of that action. So it's a good business to be in, right? So these were notes from literally, what, 12 years ago? twelve and a half years ago and I was doing a radio show and I was saying like video games pay attention to sales and if you take a look at the stock at that point in time it was a fifteen it was a twenty five dollar stock and today it's a hundred and five that's a pretty darn good return um, over twelve years pretty darn good return all for playing video games right so I'm not telling you to go buy it now I'm just saying video game industries some hits are bigger than movie hits and there's a lot fewer people. Well, there's, there's a lot of people working on these thing, projects, but a lot fewer than a movie. If you ever watched The Crawl in a movie now, it seems like it never ends. they have got like, you know, 28 Gophers, 14 gophers, 16 golfers. Like, you're like, whoa, that's a lot of jeers. So anyway, something to look at because, um, I don't know, that's just me. Um, as it turns out, Americans, regardless of income, spend a lot of money on luxuries. So this surprises me. Low-income families spend 40% of their money on luxuries. People who make the most money spend the biggest chunk of their incomes on luxury goods, but even the poorest households spend a significant chunk. The wealthiest families spend around 65% of their income on luxury goods and 35% on necessities. Um, The lowest-income families, they spend 40% of their money on luxuries and 60% on necessities. So the bottom line is that two-fifths of earners make $47,000 or less. And the middle two fifths make forty-seven thousand to one hundred thirty-four thousand, and the top fifth make one hundred thirty-four thousand and above. So, luxuries are defined as goods or services consumed in greater proportion as a person's income increases. We tend to think of spending on luxuries as an indulgence driven by emotions. Consumers who experience a loss of control are more likely to buy products that are more functional in nature, such as screwdrivers and disc detergent, because they're typically associated with problem solving. And you can. Kind of control it, so to speak. Um, so we spend a lot of money on unnecessary things. Women are more likely than men to overspend because of stress. While men say excitement leads them to spend too much. Households at the bottom of the income ladder are more likely to overspend because of stress. than households make $100,000 or more. So I think, I think the sweet spot of, of, of nuttiness has to be the, a poor woman who's stressed. Right Um, Just bad spending Bad spending I think a lot of people keep keep themselves poor By getting luxury items And a lot of people keep themselves poor by You know Spending way too much on stuff that we don't need Yes I wear $5 sunglasses uh, Because the one time I had $150 pair of sunglasses and lost them I wasn't too thrilled Where do those sunglasses go? Sunglasses heaven? You can find me online at robblackshow.com. It's robblackshow.com. I'm Rob Black.
0: Catch Rob Black and Rob Black and Your Money live on the Bay Area Airwaves, weekday mornings from 7 to
1: 9 on AM 1220 KDOW and streaming live on the KDOW radio app or KDOW.biz. And don't forget the weeknight replay at 7. And a lot of decisions are made incorrectly. I think you take a decision. I think you create opportunity. I think grammatically speaking, that's the way of thinking about it. Um, Should you buy a house or not? Should you buy or rent? Maybe that's what it boils down to. Is there a right choice? Uh, Like I always say, there's no right choices. There's just compromises. So what's your goal? Is it to make a profit? Is it to settle down? Is it to make babies? What's your credit score? Are you planning to move in the next couple of years? How much cash do you have in the bank? How much cash do you have in the bank in a worst-case scenario? What do you find you bought a home that is a fixer-upper? What do you find you bought a home that doesn't need any maintenance at all? So should you buy a house or rent? Motivation is pretty big. Buy a house if you want to put down roots. Start a family. Rent a house if your only reason to purchase a house is to get rich. Stick to renting. Now, when it comes to money... Buying a house means you're going to have to put up maybe 10, maybe 15, 20 percent of the asking price for a down payment in a hot market, maybe more. Otherwise, if you don't put down 20 percent, you're also going to have to pay mortgage insurance, which is suddenly like, oh, taxes have taken most of my money. Now I got to pay mortgage insurance on top of it. Rent typically requires a smaller fixed amount to get invested in playing, so to speak, or to get involved with. When you buy a house, you're going to have bills to contend with. You're going to have the mortgage. Um, It takes years, but you pay it off, which ultimately will kind of eliminate a monthly cost. If you rent, you're going to rent until the day you die for life. Now, some people get into a wonderful situation called a rent-controlled building, where the price will likely increase every year, but very, very slowly. Um, or not at all for some. I would never buy a home as an investment in a rent-controlled city. I just don't like it. I don't like the idea that... I just don't like it. You buy a house based on time, if you're going to be in the home for five years or more, that's when you get some of those costs back. Because when you buy a home, you typically go, okay, I'm going to put some paint on it, I'm going to do this work, I'm going to do that work, and you kind of break your back for a while. Uh, So some of the costs of buying the home, for instance, the commissions to buy and sell, it takes time to get those advantages working for you with taxes and with you're the landlord paying yourself. You have to have commitment if you want to buy a house, and that takes a lot of effort. Commitment means you can't move just because you want to. Uh, Commitment to buy a house is going to suck up some time because houses sit on the market and you have to find the one that's right for you. The last time I bought a home, I looked at easily 40 homes, easily. And it gets tiring. And my commitment was starting to break, starting to break. And then you finally like one more time. I'm going to give it one more. So with rent, renting, you don't have to have that commitment. You got to stay till the lease is up, but you could also break a lease for a fee. Sometimes if you're in a rent-controlled area, that landlord's gonna be like, "Just go. I don't want you anymore," because they can reset the rent on someone. With with buying a home, there's the risk that the economy could slow down. You could lose your job. The home could lose value, and that freaks people out. But we've seen the reward that a lot of times homes go up in value. And that gives us some emotional, like, glee, but it also gives you some financial security. When you rent, and I've seen this happen all too often, there's a lot of risk associated with rent can spike. Uh, A spiking rent can push you, oh, no, out of your where you want to live. That's a little bit on the sad side because, you know, giving you some perspective on that. uh, um, I know a lot of people in the Bay Area where it's so expensive, and one of my good friends just decided to move to Lafayette uh, from the San Carlos Peninsula, Palo Alto area. Uh, bigger house. Nice neighborhood. similarly nice, but not as close to Stanford, but closer to work. Um, but also I know three or four families that are renting, and there's something nice about going home to Grandma and Grandpa's house and say, this is the house I grew up in. Uh, When you rent, there's not going to be that ability to go back. Now, the Bay Area's got renters that will rent for 12, 13 years. They'll rent for that whole kindergarten through 12th grade experience. But then you're like, whoa, I just spent 25% of my working years renting. Um, So it's important that if you do do that, and, oh, I met this beautiful woman the other day. And I just say that because I'm just... Sometimes I just, I get breathless. I'm like, whoa. Um, she got twenty thousand. She she inherited twenty thousand dollars, and she was like, "What should I do with it? And she Should I buy real estate?" And I, she goes, "My dad loves real estate. My grandfather loves real estate." I said, "You should probably buy real estate." Um, sadly, she's looking in Fresno, which isn't horrible. Uh, it's not great, but it's not horrible for where jobs are. Um. But that, it comes down to some of that uh, thought patterns. So what else emotionally is involved in buying a home? Well, or realistically, you have to have a good credit score if you want to buy a home. Um, I like the renting aspect if you want mobility, especially until like you're settled down. Uh, people are changing jobs more and more quicker, uh, quicker and quicker and quicker. And when they do, renting it helps. Uh, but again, like I said, you need a good credit score to land a mortgage rate that you're comfortable with. If your credit score is too low, though, you might find out that you're going to have to pay more money to rent a home. And what's embarrassing or horrific about renting is uh, property managers can check your credit. And I can tell you as a property owner that, you know, The property management company said well we got three choices here and you know this one is three kids who all are separate and work at restaurants I'm like oh no not restaurant workers (laughs) which I'm not against restaurant workers per se but that income could be uh, flippy and it could be I remember being a restaurant worker in college where like you work until two in the morning you sleep until 11 a.m. And it's not to me as a landlord the ideal tenant um, closing costs on a home are expensive two to five percent of the purchase price and that stinks but on the other hand if you want to rent and the rent total location is ideal and perfect sometimes you have to pay a fee to the, the, the person involved um, so when you own a home you have maintenance repairs and renovations I did some work on the the yard, the landscaping, and you can spend hundreds of dollars pretty fast. And the maintenance, you know, when the water heater goes out, I'm not calling the landlord. When the laundry goes out, I'm not calling the landlord. I'm doing it myself, right? So a lot of times management will cover the renter's maintenance costs. Uh, but also the, on that idea of the renter's cost is if you... Have a dog that pees on the rug, and like ah, it's no big deal. It's a rental. When push comes to shoving you you're out, those pee stains and pee smells are going to have you lose your security deposit. So there's a lot of factors, non-monetary factors, playing a crucial role in housing owning versus renting. And I think anytime you move into a home, whether it's a rental or a home, it's a pretty big life change. So. Trying to afford a mortgage or avoid a mortgage is pretty important. And if you're planning on having a baby in the next three to five years, you may want to slow down your thought process on owning versus renting. Psychologically, people that I hear time and time again that they want to own a home is because they feel like they're wasting money on rent. there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, a teacher that I was talking to recently wants to buy a home. That's really far away from work. I'm like, why do you want to do that? She's like, because it's affordable. I'm like, okay, so you're saying it's far away from schools. So you're also telling me it's far away from jobs, um, and housing that's desirable. So you're going to housing. that's not desirable. But you're also probably going to housing that's not desirable in a poor school district. Otherwise, you might want to try to get a job at that school district. You get the process. This isn't as easy. So what I'm trying to get at is there's no shame renting. I'd like you to be buying somewhere at the same time. So if you rent to be close to work, if you rent for a low cost, I'd like you to be saving up some money. If not for buying a home in San Francisco or L.A., a big city market, you don't have to do that. You can buy in a midsize market or a vacation market. I once had a friend who's a police officer. He uh, couldn't afford where he was a police officer, so he bought a rental in Tampa, and uh, you know he Airbnbs it and rents it out, and one day he can retire there, or he can take the equity that he built and get something bigger and nicer that he wants. There are no right answers. There's just compromises. You've got to think about that going in. I'm Rob Black talking all things financial, money, investing, and more. Don't forget, there's another hour of today's show to listen to. Find it now at KDOW.biz or on the KDOW radio app. I recently saw someone talk about the idea of paying for college is now no longer the generally accepted form of obtaining a career, and it was from Rick Edelman. I'm a little bit disappointed by that. So Rick Edelman is a financial planner and he sold his firm to a big firm. Um, I think there is a thing that we should always look back on and say, is this still accepted or not? But he says the notion of going to college and emerging at age 22 with a degree in a field and expertise that you're going to engage in for the rest of your work and career is gone. Instead, it's no longer about a college degree. It's now about lifelong learning. I agree with a lot of that, but not completely. I don't believe in sending your kid to college with just the expectation of, okay, go figure it out. Any degree you want to get, you can get. I think you should talk to your kids about degrees. I think you know a degree in poetry is a disaster if you're spending $100,000 to do that. I know there's Pablo Nerudos out there, and uh, who's the one Oprah likes that make tons of money? I'm with it, but I'm not with it. So advancements in technology and in the, you know, the understanding of skills and knowledge that we were taught in college, specifically those related to science and tech, basically will become obsolete much more quicker. Okay, so I kind of like where he's going with that as we went from a molecular science country to a biotechnology, that's a massive system change. So in some of the drugs that you are taking for a hundred years, instantly got replaced with, you know, genetic data that we had never had access to before. And that's only going to accelerate in the next five years inside the United States. So, he says, Rick Edelman says, if you're going to be a modern day worker, you need to remain viable. You need to engage in learning. You need to engage in employment. You need to engage in leisure. He says, we call them sabbaticals right now where you go off of, uh, work for a month. Most sabbaticals don't last a few weeks, but they could last a few years sometimes. You'll go to school. You'll get a job. You'll take a couple years off one of the things I like about that concept is I don't think millennials have this, I'm locked into working from age 20 to 60 at the same job that my parents had or on some levels that I had, I've had a career now for 20 plus straight years in the same company. Um, And that's pretty awesome. But in radio, I've worked at six companies Um, in television. I've worked at one. So, I like the idea of challenging this a bit. But one area that I wish was a little bit more clear was that what I learned at college is a lot like what I learned growing up. I grew up overseas. So, I learned that people speak different languages and it's not all about me. And sometimes when you communicate with people, you have to go, you know, bread? How much? How much? And maybe that's all the English they know, but I certainly don't know enough Turkish um and living in turkey was probably one of the best educations for me as a child possible so i I like the idea of sabbaticals i like the idea a lot and uh hopefully more of us could take more of them and see the world sometimes for the first time and get outside of our own comfortable shells uh see what we're contributing to and or what we're taking away from so and i think the idea of sending your kids abroad is pretty amazing if you talk to your kids and they're mature. It's not about going to Europe and getting wine at age 18. It's about going to Europe and like experiencing another culture. I saw so much poverty when I traveled Europe. And I saw so many people that will never get to the income level that I will get to. And I don't think that's super important, but I acknowledge it. And it, it gives me perspective that I've got it pretty good. I don't actually have to work in the daily grind every single day, I choose to. Um, and at some point in time, I just told a doctor, I'm going to have a massive heart attack and die. Well, the guy in Europe who I met on a train once, who didn't have enough money for alcohol, instead was drinking cough syrup. I'm like, that's a pretty good choice. It's like going to an a AHL game versus an NHL game. Sometimes you got to do what you got to do to get your buzz going. Um, and I get it. Um, also learned, and this someone taught me this the other day. Um, it was a pretty funny line. She goes, if you could score a weed while on a vacation, it's pretty great, but it's always the same crappy weed. And it's always through like a bartender who has it wrapped up in a brick or something like that. And I'm like, how do you know this? It kind of It made me laugh on some level. So, um, but that's also like, that's a skill. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, that's a skill. Um, so early retirement is a concept that, that scares me because I, we talked earlier in the show that $1 million will get you $40,000 a year. And some people are like, if I have a million dollars, I quit. And I'm going to travel the world. And I'm going to listen to that bare necked lady song. If I had a million dollars, I think $3 million is a much more realistic number for most Americans based on their median income of about $55,000 a year. I kind of want to keep you kind of close to that so that your lifestyle doesn't get
0: too changed up.